Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an episode of Lean RAQA Today. I'm here with my long-term uh, colleague and friend, Shannon Clark, on UserWise, and she is one of my go-to human factor referrals. Hi, Shannon. Uh, Hello. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit what uh, you and the other good folks at UserWise do? Sure. Well, we're specialists in human factors consulting. So I founded UserWise in 2014 because I saw an opportunity to help manufacturers navigate the then new FDA expectations surrounding human factors. So we're focused on usability testing, use-related risk management, and compliance activities related to human factors, such as IEC 62366 compliance, and I sit on the International Standards Committee for that standard. Perfect. So it sounds like you were kind of there around um, when human factors was becoming the thing at FDA. Um, What have you seen evolve over the period of time as some of the common pitfalls and mistakes that your clients make before they they hire you, or maybe even during, you know, the course of working with you? Absolutely. Well, just to offer some background, in 1996, when they issued the Code of Federal, uh, the QMS, I mean, uh, they did cite human factors as important in the preamble, but when they released 21 CFR 820.30 Part G, which says to do design validation, they there did not call out human factors, but they did say that you need to perform design validation with production equivalent units um, in a simulated use context. And what they were alluding to was human factors, but the FDA didn't really enforce this up until they started to form a group within the FDA around 2008, 2009. And then they started knocking on the doors of companies with high risk surgical products like surgical robotics, as well as infusion pump companies starting to enforce their original intent for us to follow a risk-based approach for the human factors and user-centered design process. So that's when it started to kind of bubble up and companies at the time I was with Abbott Laboratories back in 2010, and they were starting to get their decks in the in a row with regards to human factors compliance. So the human factors team at the FDA has been growing, and with that team, uh, enforcement has increased as well, with their final guidance having been issued in 2016. Um, so as the FDA has grown and as industry has shifted to meet the FDA expectations, we've seen um, more and better human factors programs uh, at manufacturer sites. So I'd say to begin with, um, we were kind of facing this dilemma that no one was really doing usability testing with a risk-based approach. Um, in mind in accordance with what the FDA was hoping for. Uh, But over the years, I've started to see that founders of startups and uh, mid-sized companies uh, that we work with, as well as established companies, they're all um, starting to be aware of human factors. I'd say say that really started when the FDA issued their guidance in 2016. So my conversation has kind of changed over the past seven years 
between um, where we began back then, where it was like, oh, what is human factors? Now we're at a point where they're answering, they're, we're more answering, um, okay, well, we have to do human factors and we're aware of that. Um, how can we best optimize our human factors program to save costs and streamline it? So I apologize that this answer is quite long-winded and I'm finally getting to my response to your original question. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did ask to go back to the beginning, so it's, it's fair. It's a fair answer. Perfect. I do want to um, interject, Jack. Yeah. To you. This is just this is classic, like a classic FDA story with the preamble and how many times the FDA references the preamble for what they meant all along. So I think that uh, there are a lot of elements in the quality management system that, that end up this way. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how, how this has evolved into, how people's awareness has, has evolved here. Yeah, it, it was pretty interesting because in the preamble, they said that uh, usability issues, uh, that is what they called user errors, uh, should be considered to be a non-conformity because I think, the past way of thinking is, okay, you have a surgeon using the mitra clip, for example, and they turn a knob in the incorrect direction. And in that circumstance, that surgeon had made a mistake. It's their fault. The instructions clearly say to turn it in a certain direction, but this, um, this surgeon uh, encountered that use issue. And so it's their fault, user error, blaming the user. Uh, but the new intent and definitely how the FDA is enforcing this is that it's actually not the surgeon's fault, it's the manufacturer's fault. They need to take uh, it seriously, address it as a nonconformity, and come up with a solution to the issue that actually resolves it and reduces risk to acceptable levels. Um, so I, I, I guess that there is a, a pretty straightforward pitfall, uh, a misunderstanding that you can't just throw something into the instructions and say, well, it clearly says that, and maybe you even have testing to show that a surgeon can read and comprehend that language, but in a real life setting, they still turn the knob in the wrong direction because there's some underlying design issue. Right, yeah, that, that it's supposed to be designed and you can't, it's not just a paperwork exercise for reasonably foreseeable issues. Yeah. So another pitfall that we see commonly um, is a misunderstanding that a risk-based approach needs to be followed. So the idea that usability testing might include a questionnaire where you're rating um, user experience on a scale of one to seven, uh, where uh, performing this task was very easy or very difficult. Um, and, then based, and then you set the acceptance criteria to be, I don't know, 3.5 or higher on average. So that might be a method that can be used for design validation if you're just trying to comply with the design validation regulations. But the true intent of the FDA guidance for human factors is to take a risk-based approach. So you identify what are all of the potential tasks where if performed incorrectly or not, all, not at all, would or could cause uh, harm to the patients or users. Um, so then you want to identify which tasks are those based on the use-related risk analysis, and then include them in a simulated use setting where you're observing users trying to catch a glimpse into the future of this, in this, just following along with this 
you this uh, case that I'm presenting where a surgeon is using a surgical tool, um, you're going to observe them use it, and then you invite 14 other surgeons to come use it independently, and then that objective evidence supports your human factor submission. So uh, the FDA will not accept rating scales um, in relation to their human factors guidance published in 2016. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, so that that kind of brings us into our, our next question here. So that was kind of 2016. As far as I know, the FDA hasn't actually published any updated guidances since then, but their opinions, like on all technical topics, continue to evolve. What kind of feedback are you seeing um, recently from the FDA? Well, this is just in the past year, but generally when I'm working with clients, I want to find the least burdensome approach for them. And I know, uh, Michelle, you're really dedicated to that as well. Uh, I'm not here to drive up the cost of your program. I want to really just comply with expectations, design a really great user experience, and do it at the lowest cost possible, honestly. So what all I advised in the past is that if you have a low risk device, say an ultrasound system, where there's really no potential harm to patients or users that's, uh, that could be associated with serious injury um, for some indications, typically I would not require or recommend that you send a human factors engineering submission summary report to the FDA. Um, the FDA issued a guidance in 2016, a draft guidance listing high priority devices for which they expect this type of a report to be submitted. They include things like ablation systems and surgical robots. So if you're designing a low risk, inherently low risk device, like an ultrasound system, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that my clients submit a human factors engineering submission report, which requires a lot of hours to prepare, including researching all the known events in the known uh, in the mod database and FDA.gov and summarizing your user centered design process. All in all, I, I wouldn't recommend that. However, in the past year, I've been beginning to get feedback from the FDA that they do want the full human factors engineering submission report, even for really low risk products, which um, I think you can probably tell from the way I'm talking about it, that I think this is a little bit unfair and it is not uh, in alignment with the least burdensome approach. Yeah, I was like, wait a second, this story just took a little bit of a turn. Um, <laughs> And, and what are that what what is the FDA saying when that they're asking you for this approach when when previously it it wasn't and it's not clear from the older guidance that that's what they want. Um, so it's come back in a couple different ways. So we'll submit a protocol because before conducting human factors validation, I love to get the FDA's review of our protocol in advance. And uh, we've had correspondence that they can't proceed with re reviewing our protocol because we didn't prepare an entire human factors engineering submission report. In my opinion, they should be able to assess the adequacy of the protocol just based on the use-related risk analysis. They shouldn't require these other sections to be completed. And, and I think part of this, the root cause of this is actually there's been tremendous turnover in the human factors at the FDA. So that, that's kind of some further color to that. Well, I've, I've seen that in a lot of areas um, outside of, of human factors to where it's almost like you can tell, like, you know, they're a new reviewer because you can look at how long they've been at the agency. 
And then it's almost like you can tell that they just read a guide, the this guidance document in their training, and they're just asking questions, almost copy paste, rather than understanding the intent of what the the standard is saying or why the FDA is asking that. Uh, and I, I think that that is uh, the FDA was growing quickly before COVID, but definitely during. And you know, I know we're not after COVID, but it's slowing down. All of the, the, the new people and the lack of understanding um, the letter versus the intent of what the FDA is trying to accomplish is, is a challenge that people are underestimating right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are you um, seeing in terms of uh, pre-submissions? Like how often do you suggest to your client that they do, uh, that they, they do a pre-submission? A hundred percent of the time, I always want to do a pre-submission. Um, I guess there are fringe scenarios where we strategically want to ask forgiveness rather than permission, but generally it's always so advantageous to send the protocol in advance because then you're not investing in this human factors validation study. For example, paying surgeons $5,000 per surgeon to come participate in the case of a surgical use product. Um, so it's great to get the FDs by in advance. However, a ton of my clients, they're on a really tight timeline and they don't have the 60 days required, 70 days required to submit that protocol to the Food and Drug Administration. So it really is just a question of program management and submission deadline and whether there's bandwidth to do that. With the combination product space, uh, which by the way, we're hoping any day now that they'll finalize the draft guidance for human factors considerations for combination products. Um, that draft guidance was issued in 2016. Um, but anyhow, with combination products, we always submit a pre-submission 100% of the time. Wow, that's that's good advice. I always tell people that um, that the FDA, because it's the only agency that clears or approves products in the United States, it's a little like an arranged marriage. And you are going to have to, you know, get married to the FDA to commercialize your product. And wouldn't it be great if you could talk to them a time or two, like in a pre-submission ahead of time? The last thing that you want is to be surprised about FDA's opinion about your product while you are in submission, it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah, that's not a good situation to be in. I know you, you and I talked a couple of times on and off over, over the pandemic and we were both just super busy. How do you feel like COVID has changed FDA's expectations for products and maybe the type of user and use environment. Have you seen any changes or trends uh, related to that? Well, there's the trends coming from the emergency use authorization pathway in general and the human factors enforcement associated with that. So there's sort of regulatory trends. And then there's also the overall trend of industry working, uh, developing more products for use in remote settings and uh, Medicare offering reimbursement for a broader set of products that traditionally and historically have been used in the hospital. So this is giving rise to a lot of opportunity in the human factors space to conduct testing with devices traditionally used by nurses, but now they're going to be used by 
uh, lay people, for example. We've been seeing a lot of software as a medical device uh, type products emerge and also at home diagnosis is, is really the theme here. And so circling back to emergency use authorization, human factors enforcement, they were issuing some pretty insane guidance and requirements uh, at the onset of the pandemic. They finally toned it down at the end of 2021, but there was a year and a half there where it was just a little crazy. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things they required was a sample size of 150 participants in a human factor study. And that is wow. tenfold. <laughs> yeah, that's tenfold the traditional um, requirement by the 2016 guidance. The, so that guidance requires 15 through EUA. It was 100 to 150 users. That is so strange because that should be going the opposite direction during a pandemic for a product that's not going through like a 510k clearance is going through the most lax and, and temporary clearance you can get. Not only that, I, I mean, it was, it was insane. I could not believe this, <laughs> but also they're requiring actual use clinical testing, which is a, a kind of a, a marriage between human factors and clinical testing, which is another thing UserWise got super involved with. And uh, that also required a, a large sample size, 150. So you're doing user testing with simulated use with 100, 100 or 150 people, and then also clinical tests with actual use. Um, and it, it was just completely unreasonable. And uh, I really worked hard to try to push back in every town hall every week of the pandemic. And uh, I, I think I may have finally got through to them uh, because they finally did ease up on those requirements and reduce the sample sizes back to normal sample sizes in the end of 2021. And was it just the COVID products? Or were you seeing this kind of a trend across things under normal submissions too? Well, I'm a little nervous that it's going to just set a longer term precedent for asking for larger sample sizes. The way that the FDA can ask for larger sample sizes with any product is to say that you have more user profiles. So generally, we try to, what was that? I was like, yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> it's a multiplier effect. Yeah, because then you gotta like, if, if you say a physician can use it in a certain setting, a nurse can use it in another setting, but then so another group of people can take it home, and then, like you said, it, it's a possibility that they might be able to self-diagnose at home. Then you've got just a whole can of worms. Yeah. And I think the FDA to date with medical devices has been quite reasonable about sample size justifications. For example, if a nurse uses your product and a layperson uses the product and they perform the same tasks, you might be able to perform only a study with 15 lay people and then um, say that nurses are a best case scenario and therefore you don't need to test them. Um, so we've actually had a lot of success with rationales like that. But with this emergency use authorization whole deal, it uh, is giving rise to the potential to split these user groups a little bit more. So for example, um, splitting lay people into young lay people and old lay people or lay people who have experience with smartphones and don't have experience with smartphones. And um, so it just sets a dangerous precedent of increasing sample sizes that I'm nervous about. How do you feel like um, language, like when, uh, you know, I see people uh, customers who have 
conducted OUS usability studies and they think it's all transferable. What, what would you say about studies that were conducted abroad and how the FDA is going to view that data? Yeah, that's, that's also a common pitfall uh, because they're very clear in their guidance that you must include U.S. residents. Um, and so that's why everyone always, from all the countries, they always come to the United States to run their human factors validation testing. Our clients in Denmark and Germany, they tend to run their formative studies uh, within the country. And I think that makes sense. Keep it close to home, assess the product. I think you'll get pretty good data. And um, unless you're working in reprocessing or something that's vastly different, um, generally like lay people are reasonably similar. Uh, so it, it does depend on the, the product. Uh, but I, I guess the one caveat is that you are allowed to conduct human factors validation in Canada if you if you would like to, because the FDA has assessed them as reasonably similar to Americans. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Do you have any opinion about how the European Union notified bodies and the FDA differ in their interpretations of the, of how the standards actually applied? There's such variability. The thing about notified bodies is that you never know who you're going to get and how they're going to interpret the standard. I was there when we debated each and every clause of the standard, and uh, it's just crazy the wild variation in the ways people interpret it. So I think all in all, the requirements of IEC 62366 are less than what the FDA expects. It doesn't dictate a sample size uh, minimum. So technically you could, if you're able to convince your, your reviewer, you're actually able to test just one person. Uh, but it really just depends on your reviewer and what your rationale for testing one person might be. Um, also, they are not as fixated on training. So the FDA requires that you provide a rationale for why you're including training in your human factors validation testing. Um, so your rationale needs to say something like, uh, it would be crazy for someone to use this product uh, untrained or 99% of users are expected to be trained. Though the FDA still might come back to you and say, well, what about the 1%? So uh, generally at UserWise, we find ourselves doing a lot of human factors validation with untrained users. Um, and uh, with Europe, if you're only entering the European market for some of those studies, we will tend to include training more, more often because it's permitted. What are the challenges of of the different user populations, um, like structuring a study for a lay user versus a nurse. So what are some challenges with designing the study or use environment or recruitment or any particular aspect you have in mind? Designing the study, which might lead to some of those other areas that you mentioned. Yeah, um, I think Designing the study, and when I think of designing study, you're determining how to simulate a realistic use environment. Um, I think with lay users using a product, there is higher variability in the use environment, so you have to consider that. Um, for example, we're working on a resuscitation device, and it technically could be used in a bathroom with someone who just passed out in a shower in, in a dark setting, and there's no power or something like that, so um, we have to just 
consider having various use environments within one study just to make sure we're covering all the bases. Um, whereas with uh, use in hospitals, it's a little bit more homogenous and uh, you don't really need to pay as much attention to the use environment. Um, and then with users, uh, I think with any user group, you wanna make sure that you're reflecting a diverse set. So with nurses or healthcare providers, you might wanna make sure they're from a variety of institutions and they might have a variety of years of experience. And then with lay people, you wanna identify what characteristics might have bearing on their interaction. Um, so these are all considerations as you're setting up the study, but I think the most complex part of designing a study is identifying what use scenarios you're gonna cover, uh, because uh, you might wanna limit the scope to only include critical tasks, or you might include all tasks. Uh, so so you, you mentioned diversity and you spoke a little bit to that, you know, clinical trials, um, diversity, you know, genetic diversity, cultural diversity is getting to be increasingly a focus of what the FDA wants to see in protocols. Are you seeing that type of diversity to be expected in the human factors testing as well? Definitely. I mean, the FDA issued that as their top priority for 2022, I believe. I read something about that and we just published a blog post, but I do expect that to be uh, more and more important as time goes on. As part of emergency use authorization, they did have uh, requirements surrounding income, for example, and that was the first human, the first time that that was required from a human factor standpoint. We had never to date collected income information in uh, our human factor studies. Um, so that's kind of one way to reflect a diverse population. But I think with the FDA paying more and more attention to it, it will um, make it a little bit more difficult to recruit uh, the, the correct quotas of users, because you might find that you have plenty of like young white college kids or something in the direct area. But then, uh, and so these, these types of people are like super cheap to recruit and easy to access. And then um, you're just going to have to um, make sure that you're you're taking some new and novel recruitment approaches to access the other populations. But I, I will say today, as of today, the FDA has not required that we um, include certain ethnicities or quotas related to diversity in our human factors protocol. Um, but I will keep you posted and I expect over the next months or years, eventually they will start providing feedback uh, on that section. Right, that's interesting. Um, it, we've talked a little bit about you being on the standard committee and the level of uh, detail that those debates get in. I, I was uh, part of the 80369 team that was negotiating, not in the actual technical committee, but an industry committee that would meet around those meetings um, for the 80369 misconnections for enteral feeding. And those were, oh, wow. yeah, that was, uh, like you said, it is almost a word by word discussion to get to the point that a standard is published. Um, <laughs> so. Talk to me a little bit about your experience on the committee and then what we can experience in the, you know, I guess, uh, near-term future. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just expect. absolutely, what was that? Or, or expect rather than experience. Yeah, definitely. 
well, I love working on standards. Um, I kind of joke that it's kind of like being a Talmudic scholar, like you're analyzing a text and then you're tearing apart every word and interpreting every which way someone could interpret that word because each and every word will have a rippling effect through the world industry and everyone who's looking at it, which is everyone. <laughs> so it's a pretty important responsibility. And it's also important because it's guiding, uh, it's basically thought leadership for all the regulators um, because the standards committee, it's sort of the 17 uh, world's leading experts, 17 to 20 world's leading experts in the space. And uh, we meet in various places like Provence and Florida and <laughs> various, uh, fun places. And yeah, you have perspectives from Japan and uh, a lot of perspectives from Germany, Denmark, uh, a lot of people from the U.S. And we're all um, just negotiating every single word. And, and you have those in the room that uh, aren't as well aligned with the quote unquote le least burdensome approach as perhaps I am. I also tend to butt heads when someone wants to arbitrarily force creation of a bunch of documents that don't really help anyone. I, I think this is the case with the clauses related to usability evaluation plans. Um, I don't think that, that those clauses really help anyone. And I, I get into the details of that, but uh, it's it's just really, really great having all those different perspectives and, and developing the standards. So uh, we came out with 6366-1 and dash two, that's a technical information report that's further explaining the contents of 62366 one. Um, and then I think Shannon, is that where they took the the annex that used to be the annexes in the 62366 before there was a part one and two? And they, that's they exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So folks, what we're talking about is in 62366, it had a lot of um, very helpful annexes that kind of gave context and examples and example questions and a lot of different information and um, similar to what they did with 14971 in a recent update, they took those uh, annexes, which were very helpful and moved them into a second standard that was intended to be in informative as a whole rather than um, is the word normative, Shannon. Mm -hmm. The normative is the dash one and informative is dash two. So do we have any revisions uh, on the horizon in the in near term? Well, dash one was just updated in 2020 or 2021. Okay. Um, it hit its five-year review. Um, so 2025 would be the next revisit. Okay. What right were the words of the changes at that time? What changes were made in 2015 or 2020? 2020. Um, there were just corrections. I, I actually found there was a, a may instead of a must or something like that. We I know there was a pretty critical issue related to that. Um, and other than that, really trivial changes, no, nothing of mention, uh, mostly corrections to errors made. In the in the amendment, so not worth buying if you're uh, wanting to save save money and you yeah. already have 2015. Okay, well, is there anything else that you'd like to cover, Shannon, or or talk about before we we wrap up here? 
Well, uh, I'm, it's just a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about my favorite topic, human factors. And uh, if anyone ever wants to talk about human factors, please reach out to me. I, I, lo I love talking about this topic. So <laughs> you can find us at uh, www.userwiseconsulting.com. And if you uh, click on contact us, then you'll, you'll find me. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining me and taking time out of your day. And um, and if you guys need me, I'm Michelle, Lean RAQA. You can get to me by www.leanraqa.com.